the R3s are staying till 4 a.m., not 3 a.m. anymore. If the department's very busy, if the department is empty, 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 you're welcome to go home at 3, assuming you finished all your charts. But um, if there are still reds on the board or still active patients and still a busy department, still trauma's coming in, um, stay till 4 Any questions about any of that stuff? Yes. Swing shift today at 12, mm -hmm. and I know it's, I think it's kind of new. Um, yes, do I sign in and sign out? Is there someone waiting to come in with this? So, no, you don't, you're not going to take anybody to sign out at noon, but at midnight, you can sign out. If you can either sign out, you can sign out to the R3 yeah. or done it for ourselves if we were there, okay, yourselves, okay, so you can sign out to the R1, the as long as it's a EM R1, which should always be the case because there's no longer um, uh, non EMR ones on a branch. Should. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. For the interns, um, Dr. Chanwani and I just do some board review. So this is kind of just a very casual, um, you guys just go through the questions yourself and answer them yourself, and then I give a little background on them. Um, this is just something that I developed during my fellowship, just through AEM. We're doing this board review series um, based on the AEM focus review of curriculum book. So everything is based on that book. So if you have any questions about anything, you can either ask me or you can look it up in the book. All the information from these slides will be in that book. Okay? All right, so we'll start with Ahmed. Ahmed. How do I do? Pretty good. Okay. Awesome. I'm working on it. Uh, what's the most common gynecologic cancer? Uh, ovarian. Damn it. Uterine. So ovarian is more deadly, and so we see it sometimes often, more often in the emergency department because people are like dying of ovarian cancer, but um, endometrial cancer is more common. Um, Does that include cervical? What's that? Does that include cervical? It's different? United States. United States. So um, cervical cancer, that does include cervical cancer. But in the United States, cervical cancer is not very common anymore. So this is not worldwide. Worldwide cervical cancer would be the most common cancer. All right. Um, Dr. Puckett, a 65-year-old female presents with vaginal bleeding. Hematocrit is 36% and vital signs are stable. Um, assuming all other ED tests are normal, what's the appropriate disposition? Admit for blood transfusion, admit for a hysterectomy, admit for uh, estrogen. Uh, discharge home with referral to gynecologist or reassurance? I'd, I'd uh, discharge home with referral to gynecologist. Perfect. Outstanding. Um, so, and why do you want to get an endometrial biopsy? Oh, just because uh, postmenopausal bleeding. Perfect. Outstanding. So vaginal bleeding, lots of causes. It could be uterine tumor. So that's um, the reason why that uh, Dr. Puckett wanted to get an endometrial biopsy. Could just be dysfunctional uterine ble bleeding, which is kind of the NOS diagnosis. So if you've already um, rolled out endometrial cancer, then you can call it dysfunctional uterine bleeding if you haven't found another source. Fibroids can bleed. Um, menstruation, obviously, causes bleeding. Um, vaginal lacerations, cervical vaginal lesions, um, ectopic pregnancy, and then um, any pregnancy. So a person comes in of childbearing age, meaning under the age of, I don't know, 50 or 60, whichever one you'd like, whichever um, safety zone you'd like, um, assume that they're pregnant. And then once you've ruled out pregnancy, then um, you can move on to these other, um, these other diagnoses. But always examine their vagina. Because, you know, it's a possibility that they could have a laceration or something like that that's causing a very obvious cause for bleeding. Um, and also you want to know if there's, you know, some big necrotic mass or something like that in there to, um, that could also be causing their bleeding. 
and encourage them to have more urgent follow-up than you were already going to encourage them. Um, uterine tumors can present as abnormal vaginal bleeding, and usually um, their uterus is enlarged, but it's not as painful as um, people with fibroids. Sometimes fibroids have a little bit more abdominal pain. However, you can't use that to be specific. Um, just assume that someone who has abnormal vaginal bleeding above a certain age, postmenopausal, we'll say, um, has endometrial cancer until proven otherwise. So they need to follow up with gynecology to get an endometrial biopsy. And if you're here at UCI, it's very easy to do. You can tell them to follow up with FHC Santa Ana. We have the appointment on there with the OBGYN clinic. They can get an appointment. So sometimes they're going to call the clinic and they're going to get, get an appointment like two months later or something like that. They can get an appointment within a couple days. What they need to do is they need to ask for an urgent care appointment. Um, and that will get them in right away, and that will be regardless of what their insurance status is. Oftentimes, they'll get turned down for an actual appointment if they don't have the proper insurance. But if they're self-pay or they don't, or they have a different insurance, they can just pay cash. It's usually between twenty and sixty dollars for them to be seen. Um, I think it's like a hundred dollars for the endometrial biopsy um, for the pathology and things like that. And so you just tell them to make an OBGYN urgent care appointment. Okay. And they just call the, they should get in within one to two days. Yes? So uh, just a comment on the FAC. FAC yes. Family Health Center in Santa Ana and Anaheim are federally funded low-income clinics. And the purpose for being is to serve patients with no insurance who are undocumented or otherwise low-income. And so they actually, there are those low-income clinics funded by the federal government all over the country. We happen to have two of them in Orange County, including the UCI, but they're the place to go for our um, underfunded patients. That's a great question. Why does everybody think? Ultrasounding this patient in the ED. Let's say they're, let's say they're having painless vaginal bleeding. They're 65 years old. Um, they, their uterus is a little bit enlarged on palpation. Um, they don't have insurance. Uh, they're having maybe a pad every three hours of vaginal bleeding. What do you think about it? About I'm a sure what uterus? ultrasound is going to add so much because they're still going to need a biopsy anyway. You're going to see a mass. You can get a palpate or whatever. I don't know what I would get an ultrasound. Okay. Or unless I felt like they can't get one in the future and I'm just doing it more for like, okay, here it is, here's the read, or it's done for someone later on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think so one thing is that um, if they can't, if they're not going to have any access to insurance, luckily at FHC Santa Ana they have ultrasounds that they can do at the bedside. The OBGYNs can actually do it at the bedside. Um, but if you want to document, um, if you notice that it's slightly abnormal uterine exam, um, I would and they don't have any way of following up, they don't have any insurance, I might do it in the emergency department just to expedite their workup. Um, certainly, sometimes like an, a necrotic fibroid might be your answer, and that's, um, I, I mean, I guess you're not really going to manage it that much differently, but um, it's just kind of good to know if that's what they have, and that's what's causing their pain, and that's what's causing their vaginal bleeding. Um, if they're having quite a bit of bleeding, I would probably get it, just because um, the OBGYNs are going to want it, and you might have to consult OBGYN in the emergency department if they're having so much bleeding that they're becoming anemic. What, were you going to say anything about I that? I, I don't know. I, I would generally get it, but I yeah. can't. But I think mostly because they would want it eventually, and mm -hmm. it's better to... Because if it's just... The other thing is, if we just see a thickened endometrial stripe, then I'm worried more about cancer. Right. But if, I, if they comes back with you know multiple uterine fibroids, then I would be more comfortable telling the patient... We still have to worry about tumors and cancer, but you have these fibroids, which are generally okay. You're still going to need to buy. I would like to reassure them. Absolutely. More information, just saying you may have cancer. Go to the doctor. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And w whereas if it was a thick endometrial stripe, you would say, you know, I really worried about you. You'd call them in two days to make sure they were able to make their appointment with FHC Santa Ana. And if that gets messed up, here's my card. Call me. 
Right, exactly. Because I get once in a while, I get one of those, and, and I have to help them navigate the system. If it's really important, like a biopsy. I tell, I, I tell probably, you'll hear me about 40 to 50% of my patients what my schedule is for the next week. Um, and I write it on my card oftentimes, and I do not, do not get abused. I've never had someone call me back for eight refills on their Vicodin, and if they do, you just say no. Um, and yeah, I've, it has always been something that has added to either my comfort, knowing that they're doing okay, or um, something that's helped them because they needed to come back or they needed to follow up with someone else or something like that. So I always give my um, patients my schedule for the next week or so if, I'm, if there's something that they're going to need to follow up with. Okay, so um, diagnosis is made via endometrial biopsy or um, dilation and curettage is done. Okay, all right. Most, common, uh, most commonly endometrial carcinoma between 60 and 70 years of age is the most common age group. Um, risk factors, uh, previous estrogen therapy, um, hormonal replacement therapy after menopause, obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. It can also be sometimes detected by pap smear. Dysfunctional uterine bleeding we were talking about is just that you've already um, ruled everything else out. And then the way we treat that, so we'll often give them Provera in the emergency department. If someone's having fibroid bleeding or someone's having a lot of bleeding, sometimes without the endometrial biopsy, I'll just start Provera in the emergency department if they're really having quite a bit of bleeding. Like I said, if it's just one pad every three hours, I probably won't start them on an OCP. Um, but if they're having like two pads an hour and their hemoglobin dropped from like 12 to 10 or something like that, um, I'll probably start them on Provera in the emergency department and make sure that they get a close gynecologic follow-up. And I'll usually talk about starting them on OCPs with their gynecologist. So I'll either discuss it with a resident on call from OBGYN and say they're going to follow up with FHC in a couple days, or I'll discuss it with their home gynecologist. However, if they're above the age of 50, if they're postmenopausal, you don't want to necessarily start Provera because if they do have a biopsy positive for endometrial cancer, then you can potentially make that worse. So in someone over 50, you want to make sure they have their EMB, EBM? EMB first um, before you start them on any oral contraceptives. But in someone younger than 50, you can fairly safely start someone on um, Provera or some sort of oral contraceptive if they have close follow-up. Do you have a go-to or the one that guides? Usually Provera. It's pretty cheap. Yeah, it's like 10 milligrams. Or you can just give them like a birth control pill pack and then tell them to take like three pills the first day, three pills the second day, three pills the third day, and then taper down um, until they get to one pill. As far as like the pack, um, mm -hmm. OBGYN like Sprintech. Sprintech? Yeah, that's okay. That's yeah. Is that pretty cheap? Yeah, it's really cheap. Perfect. That's Sprint why I that. Okay, great. Sprintech. Sprintech. S-P-R-I-N-T-E-C. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be like go running a marathon. No, it's like some girl on the bottle like, <laughs> like I don't need to have periods. <laughs> I can run like marathons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, Dr. Weber, um, these are your choices for the next few questions. Well, you don't have to do all of them. You can just do this one. Um, so, what is uterine bleeding without cervical dilation or effacement during the first trimester? Us is closed. Uh, threatened. threatened. Outstanding. So threatened. So the management of that. Tell me the management of that. Management of the threatened ABA. Yeah. We're going uh, to check their uh, blood type. Okay, great. Uh, we're going to get an ultrasound. Why do you want to check their blood type? Uh, to see if there's RH incompatibility. So perfect. So they're RH positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And if they're negative, what are you going to give them? Give them Rogam. Okay, great. Uh, 
We're going to get an ultrasound and see if we have an IUP okay. um, or not an IUP. Okay. Uh, we've already determined they're pregnant. Okay. Um, check a urine. Great. Uh, we might check a hemoglobin, make sure they didn't bleed too much. Okay. Um, we'll check a beta. Great. Sounds good. What if they don't have an IUP? Uh, if they don't have an IEP, then we have to assume, if they have any pain or anything, we have to assume it's an ectopic okay. versus a completed abortion. Okay. Um, and we'd probably involve our OB colleagues. Sounds good. All right, we'll talk more about that later. More later. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Outstanding. Okay. They, they, always, they always say pelvic rest. Uh, pelvic rest. I don't course, agree with that. I think it's kind of ridiculous. Like if someone's having, unless they have a history of a lot of miscarriages or unless they have kind of a big subchorionic hemorrhage or something, I don't really see the point of pelvic rest. If someone's going to miscarry in the first trimester, they're going to miscarry. Um, it's usually chromosomal abnormality. Um, and so I don't think you doing pelvic rest is going to prevent that or not prevent that. So, research. Yeah, there's no, I don't think and there's so any. So I always just tell the patients, like, this is what we, we're going to recommend. This is what we recommend. <laughs> so there's no, no, no research, nothing exactly. is beneficial or not. But. Yeah, I say the same exact thing. I say, it, especially if there's no subchorionic hemorrhage, if the baby looks great, I usually say, you know, we recommend pelvic rest, but it's probably not going to make a difference. And do we actually tell them what pelvic rest means? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. So what does pelvic rest mean? Perfect, perfect. Yeah. We also have an exit care for pelvic rest. Oh, great. Good to know. Well, Thank you. I usually tell them it's fifty percent chance yeah. of continued pregnancy versus uh, miscarriage. Is there a better number? To call it, yeah, thirty, probably thirty or forty. Yeah, yeah thirty or forty. If they have an, I, if they actually have an IUP, thirty for percent chance of miscarriage. If, if there's an IUP. I think it's even lower than, like if there is a heartbeat, I think it's even lower than that. If you don't, so if you, it's probably 30 to 40% overall. If you don't see an IUP, either it's early pregnancy or it's an ectopic or whatever, um, then it's probably much higher, so it's probably higher than 50%. If you do see an IUP, it's probably much lower, probably more towards like 20%. So, and 50% of women have that, who have normal pregnancies have vaginal bleeding. So, if that makes sense. Yes, so post-implantation bleeding or whatever. And it's important to say the words, and there's nothing that you can do, exactly. you can do that's going to change that. It's just going to happen, or it's not. And, <coughs> and there's nothing you did to cause this. Yeah. You don't know how many patients have thanked me after I said, there is nothing you did to cause this. They're like, oh, thank God. I thought it was because I ran yesterday, or I thought it was because of X. So. Okay. I had that one year three weeks ago. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they, yeah, they said that that's why, or at least it was explained to me that the pelvic rest was mm -hmm. to just like relieve the guilt of the patient too more to make them so that they oh, would interesting. Right. think that like there was something that they, that oh my gosh, well, did that happen? Because we could, can't, not every doctor will say that this is absolutely not why, gotcha. you know, and so that's, which I, yeah, so interesting. That's why that's interesting. Okay. Psychological. Yeah, psychological. <laughs> it's the placebo pelvic rest. <laughs> all right. Um, Kaya, um, first trimester bleeding. Uh, spontaneous expulsion of all fetal and placental tissue before 20 weeks. Complete. Excellent. That is a complete. And uh, management? Sorry. Um, <laughs> I know. Really, I mean, as long as that there, I, I would want to make sure that there was... Um, Maybe get a hemoglobin to make sure that just they haven't bled sure. too much, but otherwise just, I mean, follow up with their OB. Perfect. Follow up, OB, probably check an H&H &H and get a serial H&H &H a couple days later just to make sure it's down trending appropriately. It eventually does get to zero. Would you do, I mean, would you do a full, you mean HCG? HCG, excuse me, HCG. Yeah, you want their hemoglobin to get eventually to zero. 
just keep on bleeding. Um, okay, all right. When we, we talk about the hemoglobin, we think lab tests, but what you really want to know is when they get up and walk around without getting dizzy. Absolutely. What other chain you know, are they worth a static? Yes, sir. So everybody should be worth testing. <laughs> There's a diaper in my purse. <laughs> What's that? Road test lots of people that have chief complaints of dizziness. You know, and road test lots of people. I'm mad I learned that yesterday. Just road test, road test, road test. Road test. Yeah. yeah. We got like sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I'm mad that caught a stroke yesterday from a road test. Stroke for seven hours. Yes. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Okay. Sounds good. All right, and then don't forget to check RH on these guys. Um, don't forget to check RH to make sure they don't need um, Rogam. Honestly, if someone has a, a miscarriage before six weeks or before seven weeks, probably um, they're not going to get RH sensitized. However, if they do, um, they're going to come back and sue you. Um, so just give the Rogam. But if you... The CC of fetal blood yep. be transfused into mom, you know, and in order to get for mom to get RH sensitized, and until six weeks that... He just doesn't even have a CC. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That whole RH thing was done for third trimester, you know, massive maternal fetal hemorrhage transfusions, and they extrapolated back to any kind of drop of blood during early pregnancy, and that's really quite silly. Yeah. That we do it. Yeah. There's no scientific basis. Exactly. Yeah. So random useless information. But yes. For some reason, whenever I order Rogam on the computer, no matter uh -huh. which one I choose, it's always the wrong one. So okay. Just for the interns, when you order Rogam, sometimes it's good to do a follow-up call to the blood bank just to let them know that you've ordered it and make sure it's the right one. Because sometimes they want oh, no, any part of it, sometimes they want the other one. And no matter which one I order, it's always wrong. And sometimes the patient will sit for like a half an hour and nothing happens in 45 minutes. And you're like, oh, what the heck is going on? And then you call blood bank. And they're like, oh, you ordered the wrong one. It's a good shit. And you're like, oh, thanks for letting me know. But that's too regardless. That's really nice. The blood bank acts like they're calculating something. And they're like, well, we have to calculate the dose. It's always the same. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I tried to order it. Into. I've mm -hmm. never gotten mm -hmm. rogan faster than two hours. And then the nurse has to go down to get it. The nurse is going to know how to give it. Right. There's no instructions on the package. I've never been able to get a patient program faster than like three hours. Yeah. I agree. Ordering to out forever. It's ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. Well, then so make sure you warn your patient that it's going to be several hours for them to get the program. Yeah. There, I don't think you can order it on your own anymore because I did it four days ago and it was program per blood bank. That was oh, okay. the only choice. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, good. Rogam per blood bank it is. Perfect. Okay. Um, let's go with Kim. Um, dead fetus retained in the uterus, and more than five weeks of it retaining in the uterus, um, puts the mom at risk for coagulopathy. Excellent. So that's a missed AB. So um, this gets an OBGYN consultation. They need evacuation, especially if it's been more than five weeks. Um, if they have OBGYN follow-up within a couple days, um, they seem pretty reliable. They've just got a dead fetus in there. Um, you could probably send them home without getting an OBGYN consult in the emergency department. How do you know how long it's been? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, it, well, sometimes you do though because you know when their last menstrual period was, and you know how big the fetus is. Oh, okay. So if their last menstrual period was ten weeks ago and you have a five-week fetus, then you know it's been five weeks, um, unless they're really unreliable and things like that. So if they if they don't know when their last menstrual period was, then you might want just be on the safe side and get OB consult in the ER. Um, but if still, if they have follow up within a couple days. If they're not coagulopathic, they're probably going to be okay for two more days. So, 
Um, at UCI, we'd probably get OB consult, um, but if you're in the community, you don't have to get this consult, especially if you're at Kaiser. This can follow up in a couple of days with OBGYN. Okay. Um, and they need evacuation eventually. Okay. Um, Lori? Incomplete. Ludeman? Incomplete. <laughs> right. Perfect. Okay, so passage of some, but not all, um, tissue through the cervix, usually between 6 to 14 weeks, so that's incomplete. Um, okay. Management? OB-9 consult. Okay. Um, and then the, um, check the, the um, type and cross program. And Great. So, and why do you get an OB consult? What are you worried about? What's your question for OB when you're calling them? Yeah, so it doesn't as it's infrequently it doesn't pass on its own as frequently as just a regular old miscarriage. And so, if it's already only passed some, there's retained products of conception as another um, term for this. Um, they're at risk for continuing to bleed, and they're um, at risk to, for continuing to bleed massively. And it's also very difficult for people to pass these on their own. So they often need a little help. So they need some meso, or they need a DNC or a DNE or something to evacuate the the remainder of the products. Okay. What's that? They love consulting for this one. Yeah? This is their favorite? No, they hate it. Okay. <laughs> <That's good laughs> they love consulting for everything. They've been upset about like ectopics that are like bleeding massively into their abdomen. So it's just I think people just don't want to consult. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Karen and I had one. Um, okay, uterine bleeding, let's see. Alisa. Um, without cervical dilation. Good job. Okay, so uterine bleeding. With cervical dilation, without passage yet. So that's inevitable. If the cervix is open, it's probably going to happen. I usually watch these guys in the ER, and they usually close their os on their own and usually miscarriage in the ER. Um, kind of, we tend not to send people home with an open os. Um, I'd probably call OB if the os was still open. But I usually give these guys a tincture of time. Um, so you don't want to call OB like right when they're there, like unless they're massively bleeding out. Um, but most people are going to pass it while they're there in the ER. So same thing, same management. How long do you wait, do you wait I'll give them like, yeah, I'll give them like two or three hours. And if there's like no progress, then, but if they're kind of continuing to bleed and more stuff's coming out and I'll, I'll watch them. I just kind of keep rechecking them every couple hours or so, check their ass a couple more times. You'll kind of get an idea if they're going to keep staying there or if they're going to um, actually come through. <coughs> All right. Most common causes, one, of second and third trimester bleeding. <laughs> Sounds good. Does sound like good things to go with. Anything else you can think of? Let's see. Second Maybe a late ectopic. Okay. Sounds good. Postcoital. Okay. Anything else? What if they're third trimester in there? <laughs> what if they're 37 weeks? What if they're 37 weeks and they had a little bit of bleeding? And it was associated with some mucus. It's disgusting. Yeah. So they could just be in labor, right? Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. So placental abruption is pretty common. 30% of bleeding during the second and third trimester is placental abruption. And that's pretty darn serious, right? So we don't want to miss a placental abruption. Placenta privia, also fairly serious. 
um, 20% as well. Preterm labor is possible, um, an incompetent cervix, a molar pregnancy, and then postcoital bleeding. But you're probably going to get OBGYN involved in the second or third trimester bleeding because obviously if it's viable, if it's greater than 20 weeks or greater than 21 weeks or 23 weeks, I don't know um, what we're saving nowadays. Um, but if it's viable then you're definitely going to get OBGYN involved and they're going to do monitoring, things like that. If it's not viable, even if it's like 16 or 17 weeks, you still have to kind of worry about some of these other interesting causes. So I would have OBGYN see them in the emergency department for someone that's beyond 13 or 14 weeks or so. Um, and then you don't want to do a speculum exam, especially later, especially after 20 weeks, um, because you're worried about placental privia. You can make it worse. Okay, so, placenta, so talk to me, Juan. Talk to me about placental privia versus... Placental abruption. So how is one going to present versus the other? So how would placental yeah, so abruption, abruption present? Bleeding. Painful bleeding, great. And then how about placenta previa? How that painless bleeding. Okay, great. So placenta previa, basically your placenta is just too low. Um, and so it's kind of right there by the cervix. Um, and so it could just start bleeding because there's an open cervix there, or a closed cervix, hopefully. Um, and so as the... U as the uterus starts to thin, as the cervix um, starts to uh, efface, is that the right word? Um, then you start to get some vaginal bleeding, which can kind of disrupt this, this placenta. Um, fairly common. Diagnose that with ultrasound. Pretty easy. Transabdominal ultrasound. See where the placenta is. Um, depends on the fetal age, but you're going to talk to OBGYN about this. If someone comes in, especially mid-second trimester, um, third trimester, with bleeding, you're just going to call OBGYN. You're not even going to look there. Um, you're probably going to order an ultrasound and see what's going on, but you're going to refer this to your gynecologist right away. And then they'll decide if they want to deliver or what. So the decision is theirs. Whereas abruption is someone that might present to your ER and it might be kind of critical because they might not be doing so well. So they're usually going to have painful vaginal bleeding, um, but there may not be any bleeding at all. Um, this is also fairly common, and basically what's happening is the placenta is just separating off the uterus. So risk factors are previous history of having an abruption, having a C-section just because that disrupts the uterine wall, um, having multiple other babies, smoking, crack cocaine is not a good idea for many reasons during pregnancy, but particularly for placental abruption, um, and then trauma can also cause it too. So our, our MVCs that we monitor on tocolysis for a while, a lot of times we're monitoring for placental abruption just to make sure that they don't have any D-cells and things like that with the baby. So if it's minimal, sometimes they'll um, get hospitalized. They'll definitely get delivered if it's term. But if it's minimal, they might just watch them for a while and let their lungs um, mature, assuming that um, they're doing well on the monitor. If it's moderate, they're most likely going to deliver, kind of regardless of age, because the mother is not going to do well. Um, and the baby's probably not already doing well anyway. And if it's severe, you have to stabilize mom. So mom could be... Um, dropping her blood pressure, mom could be needing blood products, mom could be needing chest compressions even. So this is something that we could feasibly see in the emergency department. Um, and so something to keep in mind. Who are we? Oh, Cassandra Majestic. Number of weeks at which the uterus reaches the symphysis pubis. So this guy right there, right around there. 10 or 12, yeah, 10. Let's go with 10. <laughs> Number, this is kind of gross. I'm sorry. Like, I should not have a picture. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, okay, number of weeks at which the uterus reaches the umbilicus. Dr. Majestic? 20. Perfect. 20. Great. Just to keep in mind, um, I remember one time I, like, walked in. 
<laughs> I'm not going to mention who this was. Um, but it was two male, it was a male resident and a male attending. And they're like using the ultrasound to like date this pregnancy. And they're like trying to figure out how old the baby is like based on the, the fetal head. And like the like uterus is to the xiphoid. And I'm like... <laughs> Pretty sure it's term, like <laughs> just feel like so. Just good to have the dates in mind for um, how big the baby is and things like that. So I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> okay, but both of them are attendings now in our department. Okay. Um, so when um, Candace, when do we get fetal heart motion and uh, sorry, fetal heart motion and fetal pull detected by transabdominal ultrasound? Do you know how many weeks along someone has to be? Mm-hmm, transabdominal. Approximately, you don't have to take a wager. So close, yeah, seven to eight. Usually with our better ultrasounds, probably 10 to 12, you know, a few years ago with the older model ultrasounds. But yeah, seven to eight weeks, you can usually see something by transabdominal ultrasound. And then how about transvaginal ultrasound, Jason? Five to six. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, six to seven, five to six. Yeah, if you, with our five, five to six. Yeah, yeah. We saw, I saw Gracie transabdominally at six, like six and zero, six weeks and zero days. So, um, at, in room thirty-six, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so little Gracie, little Gracie's little flicker of her little heart. No, oh, she's such a big girl. Um, gonna be one year old this weekend. Oh. All right. So, Karen, um, you have someone with a beta HCG of a thousand. Uh, this is their ultrasound. What do you think the diagnosis is? It could be an ectopic. It could be, yeah. So but it it's also could be in the, under the indeterminate. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's free fluid, though. So that's why we're going to con um, consider it an ectopic. Yeah. So this is an ectopic until proven otherwise. But we'll kind of talk more about um, whether or not to call empty uteruses ectopics or not. So ectopic, it's about 1% of all pregnancies. Risk factors are PID, um, intrauterine devices, previous BTL. Um, previous ectopics, infertility, tubal ligation. Um, so infertility meaning infertility treatment or infertility meaning I have infertility because I've had PID so many times. So eat both of those can <laughs> cause ectopics. Um, and so HCG levels are non-diagnostic for ectopics. They can be low, normal, or high. Okay, so you can have any beta HCG level um, with an ectopic. So it, just because you have a high um, beta HCG level doesn't mean it's an ectopic. Just because you have a low beta HCG level doesn't mean it's just an early pregnancy that we can't see. So you always have to be suspicious of an ectopic if you don't see a um, baby in the uterus. And you can still be suspicious for an ectopic even if you do see a baby in the uterus now that everybody's getting IVF, um, unfortunately, or Clomid and things like that. Okay, so low HCG level should not be dismissed as an early IUP. So what does the ultrasound show? It can show an adnexal mass. And if you see an adnexal mass with a heartbeat, then that's usually pretty good at saying that there's an ectopic pregnancy, and that should probably be terminated and things like that. Um, you can see cul-de-sac fluid without an IUP, so that's what we see right here. So we see the uterus here. We see an empty uterus. We see a normal um, stripe. And then you see all this free fluid back here behind the pelvis. And then indeterminate is basically absence of a definitive IUP. And so oftentimes they will give methotrexate. We actually had a long discussion about this yesterday. I don't know if you were in the emergency department. They'll give methotrexate to these girls that have like this cyst in their ovary and um, they've got nothing in their uterus and they have a beta HCG of 800 or you know 1200 or something like that. 
And that's probably inappropriate. There's actually a lot of lawsuits that are coming up that there's these babies that are being born with all these fetal malformations because they got methotrexate because people thought it was an ectopic and it was just an actual really early IUP. So if OBGYN is going to give methotrexate to a patient, make sure you have a pretty good discussion with them for why they're giving methotrexate. A cyst on their ovary might just be a corpus luteum. Um, might just be their corpus luteum cyst. It might just be an early, you know, early pregnancy. Um, and if they're not having pain or anything like that, it's perfectly reasonable to do ex- basically um, conservative management and watch them for a couple days. Have them come back to clinic in two days for a beta recheck, see if the beta is going up. Have them closely followed up with ultrasounds and have them return immediately if they start to develop abdominal pain, um, assuming that they're not having abdominal pain. If they've got free fluid, that's kind of a different story. Um, it's that, I think that's a hard decision to make if you were an OBGYN. Sometimes you have physiologic free fluid, which is normal, um, but you know, kind of depending. There's there's not like one value where it's definitely an ectopic, where it moves definitely from an ectopic to um, just an early IUP with a little bit of free fluid. So I would just encourage you to discuss it with OBGYN before just willy-nilly giving methotrexate because you think it's an ectopic because it could just be an early IUP. At the same time, as emergency physicians, we have to be very wary of ectopic pregnancies. So, and we don't want to miss one. So return precautions are always very, very important. Extensive discussion with the patient and OBGYN about the options. Obviously, if it's an undesired pregnancy, um, sometimes that makes the decision in and of itself. Um, but especially if it's a desired pregnancy, um, uh, just be careful about giving methotrexate for quote-unquote possible ectopic. Doesn't Dr. Fox uh, discuss that the empty uterus plus pelvic free fluid the positive pregnancy test is 90 plus percent ectopic? Um, he, actually, he was actually on a panel um, discussing that, uh, I mean, I think a moderate amount of free fluid, yes, but I think like a minimal amount of free fluid. He was actually on a panel talking about um, method, giving methotrexate to all these people that had um, possible, these early ectopics, and they're discussing the um, indications for giving methotrexate and things like that, and he's actually very against giving methotrexate for early um, IUPs. However, this, this one, this yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. This is an ectopic, <laughs> sorry. If I wasn't clear, this is an ectopic to prove in otherwise. This has a moderate to large amount of free fluid. You've got an empty uterus. But I'm talking about minimal free fluid. Um, minimal to mild free fluid could just be pregnancy related. But at the same time, if they're having pain, blah, 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 it's going to be just, there's just this blurred line. It's like diagnosing a pulmonary embolism. It's kind of hard to do. It's like diagnosing syphilis. Um, so there's somewhere between <laughs> ectopic and early IUP. Yes, Kaya? If beta HCG is zero, though, there's no ectopic. If beta HCG is zero, there's no ectopic. Absolutely. There's no pregnancy whatsoever. Yes. If beta HCG is less than five. Uh Perfect. Yeah, so if you're unsure, sometimes you can have a negative pregnancy test, and there's a couple of reasons to have a negative urine pregnancy test. One is because they mixed up the urine samples. Two is because there is an error in the lab equipment. Three is because it's just a really low um, beta HCG level, but probably not low enough that like you're probably not going to have an ectopic with a beta HCG of like 20. Um, I mean, you could have a very early one, but it's probably not going to rupture or anything like that. Yes, exactly. So if you have a negative urine pregnancy, if you're really suspicious, for example, the person has free fluid, um, they're having pain, just send a send a blood beta and just be double sure. So, but if I mean, if they're not having pain and they have a negative urine pregnancy test and they look pretty good, you can probably assume that your test is normal. I mean, that your there test are is case reports of single dig- single digit. Beta HCG ectopics. Okay. Zero. I didn't know no, that. But 
nine. Yeah. Okay. So just it's possible. keep your suspicions yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. We're rare, but this case we're Yes. Do you personally prescribe methotrexate from the ED? No. You get no. a gynecologist. The gynecology attending, yeah. I would not, um, I wouldn't do it myself. You can't even prescribe it because it's a chemotherapy drug, right? I, you know, I, I like, you can't as residents. I almost feel like I would be allowed to, I feel like I've asked. Okay. Only the gynecology okay. fellow or attending could do it. Now, okay. I don't know if that's still enforced. Okay. Know several years ago that was the case. Better for us to just to stay away from it. Yeah, yeah I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Medical legally, there's no reason. I mean, yeah. you're always going to do it in consultation with OBGYN. And if it's 3 in the morning, just say, wake your fellow up. Or we can wait until 7 in the morning, and th then we can do it. So I personally would not want to do that. I think I I'm not sure what's that's what we were talking about. There was a policy that allow certain kinds of physicians to give certain kinds of drugs. But yeah, I mean, but as a physician in California, not national hospital based. Yeah, hospital based. Yeah, so you can prescribe whatever you want. You can prescribe propofol if you want to, to a pop star. <laughs> All right. Um, so a topic. So we kind of talked about this in your guys's orientation. If there's a positive fast. In a non-traumatized patient, you're just going to, in a non-traumatized female patient, you're going to assume, assume it's ectopic until proven otherwise. Um, so unstable, obviously, ABCs, emergent gyne consult. Um, so a stable, ruptured ectopic, less than four centimeters, um, with a lower HCG, can be treated with methotrexate. Um, but there is this kind of methotrexate limit. So I think it's like eight weeks, I want to say, and it's greater than 3,500 um, beta-HCG, and it's greater than four centimeters. So all of those things can't be treated with um, methotrexate. Four centimeters sounds really big. Maybe the whole sack. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, stable with low suspicion can be followed with outpatient return precautions. And then, oh, and then we always have to consider a heterotopic pregnancy. So what's a heterotopic pregnancy? Um, Karen, what's a heterotopic pregnancy? And you have one in the uterus and then one ectopic at yeah. the same time. Yeah, so it's like you get super lucky. Um, <laughs> so uh, those are pretty uncommon. So one in 4,000 to one in 30,000. But in patients with IVF or with Unclomid and things like that, we're seeing it much more commonly. So if it's perfectly acceptable if someone has an IUP to ask if they weren't on any fertility treatment to dismiss it that it's not an ectopic pregnancy unless something crazy is going on and there's lots of free fluid and you know they're really tender or things like that. But if you see an IUP and they're not on, they're not on any sort of fertility treatment, it's okay to say it's not an ectopic, assuming you know something crazy isn't happening. Um, but in, but always have that higher level of suspicion in someone who's got an IVF or in someone who's on Clomid. What are the discriminatory, um, Karen, I'll have you do another one since that one was kind of easy for your level of training <laughs> and in-service scores. Um, what are the discriminatory zones for transvaginal and transabdominal ultrasounds, i.e., the beta HCG levels at which a pregnancy should be seen on ultrasound consistently? Transabdominal is like 1,500 to 2,000. Sure. Yes, actually. Good job. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Like, look. And then the transvaginal is... No, you said you just said. Okay, that tra yeah. 3,500. It's um, 6,500. Yeah, so 1,500 to 2,000 for transvaginal. So women with beta HCGs above these discriminatory zones should be considered to have an ectopic until proven otherwise. So someone has a beta HCG of 3,000. You don't see anything in the uterus on transvaginal ultrasound. They probably have an ectopic. Okay. Someone has a beta HCG of 
10,000, you don't see anything on transabdominal. Obviously, then you're going to do a transvaginal, and if the transvaginal doesn't show it either, then um, they probably have an ectopic as well. On that. Of course. So, um, sometimes radiology will give you crap. Yes. Like ordering yes. an ultrasound on something with a beta of 500. Yes. Five sound ectopics with a beta of 500, you know, and they have an ectopic pregnancy. So don't, like, use that as your, like, end-all, be-all for ordering ultrasounds. Correct. And tell radiology, you know, and yeah, and you can sound very intelligent and say, oh, well, you're referring to the fact that the discriminatory zone is 1,500 to 2,000. Very astute that you notice that. However, I'm actually worried about an ectopic. And so, you know, as you know, ectopics can have betas as low as 9. And so you know that we have to rule that out. And you just kind of make them feel smart and things like that. So I always say, as you, as know, you know, if I want to sound really condescending, um, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Um, Dr. Fruman. All the following physiologic changes are expected during pregnancy, except increased heart rate, decreased pulse pressure, increased cardiac output, increased blood volume, leukocytosis. Um, I think all the other ones are true. I don't know about this one, so I'm going to go with B, decreased Good job. Way to take a test. Um, decreased <laughs> pulse pressure. Okay, great. So physiologic changes during pregnancy, increased heart rate, so they get a little tachycardic. That's normal, but they shouldn't be, you know, in the hundreds or anything like that. They should be, like, in the 90s. Most of these are young, healthy women. Um, decreased systolic blood pressure, so they're gonna, their systolic blood pressure is going to go down, but then their diastolic blood pressure is going to go down even further. So that's why when we worry about preeclampsia and things like that, the, the cutoff values are so low. It's because their blood pressure should drop to begin with because they're um, pregnant, um, and so their blood pressure should go, go down to begin with. So the systolic decreases less than the diastolic does, so the, decreased, the diastolic decreases more. That's because the vascular tone is kind of relaxing. Um, so that's why that happens. And then you get your decreased uh, stroke volume, SVR, stroke volume, yes, right? Stroke volume, yeah, something like that. And then um, increased cardiac output, um, and then increased blood volume. So which may decrease your actual hematocrit, um, because your blood volume is going up. So your plasma volume is going up more than your actual um, red blood cells are going up. Um, they take bigger breaths. They have less reserve. Um, they decrease their creatinine, they increase their clotting factors, that's why they get PEs and things like that. Um, decrease gastric tone, both because of the hormones and then also because the baby's pushing on uh, all the organs. It's a very pleasant experience, pregnancy. Um, anyway. <laughs> all right. Uh, Dr. Tui. 24-year-old female at G2P1 at eight weeks presents with intractable vomiting. Labs show hypokalemia and ketonuria. Her physical exam is within normal limits, except for dry mucous membranes. Risk factors for this condition include a single gestation, an empty uterus with a complex cystic structure on the left adnexa, two or more gestational sacs, great clusters, or snowstorm-like pattern. Huh. So what does she have, first well, of all? she's got um, Perfect. So she's got hyperemesis gravidarum. So what are the risk, what are some risk factors for hyperemesis gravidarum? Having it in the past, that's the only one I know of. What's that? Actually, apparently don't know uh, the risk factors of hyperemesis okay. gravidarum. That's okay, don't worry about it. Anyone I want to take a guess? I would just C and D. Perfect, good. Because you're a good, you're a good test, test taker. I don't actually know. So it's C or D. So um, hyperemesis gravidarum is basically vomiting severe enough to cause starvation ketosis or dehydration. 
Um, it peaks at eight to twelve weeks. It usually resolves by six. Usually resolves by sixteen weeks. So we don't see a lot of people after sixteen weeks with hyperemesis. So molar pregnancies and multiple gestations because you have a higher beta HCG level, and so that um, is associated with hyperemesis gravidarum. So molar pregnancy was the snowstorm, grape-like clusters, and then multiple gestations was the two fetal poles. Um, so we're going to hydrate them, make sure to give them glucose. Um, we're going to give them antiemetics. We're going to collect their, correct their electrolytes, and then vitamin B6 may also be helpful. So, and they can usually be treated, and if they're able to tolerate PO in the emergency department, get discharged. Yes, sir. Oh, time. Okay. Yeah. Why don't we finish up? I just want Wynn to do one too, because he's the. Are there any other residents around the corner? Max. So I'll have Wynn and Max do one. Okay. Great. Um, molar pregnancy, placental pr proliferation without fetal tissue. You get painless vaginal bleeding, an abnormally high HCG level. The uterus is usually enlarged, larger than expected for dates. Um, ultrasound shows a snowstorm-like pattern, um, and they're at an increased risk for choriocarcinoma. Um, safe or unsafe when penicillin during pregnancy? Penicillin, cephalosporins, and clindamycin. Safe. Good job. They're safe. Yay. Um, Dr. Jen, safe or unsafe? Tetanus vaccine and immunoglobulin. <laughs> Safe. Safe, yay, <laughs> baby. Um, well, we'll all do them together. Okay, MMR vaccine. Safe or unsafe? Unsafe. unsafe boo. <laughs> um, Reglan. Safe, yay. Okay. Um, heparin. Lovenox. Yeah, they're pretty safe. However, there's a fetal risk of osteoporosis, thrombocytopenia, prematurity, and miscarriage. Recent studies suggest that Lovenox may be lower risk than heparin. <laughs> Ask your doctor if you'd like Lovenox. Uh, yeah, if you want to be a bad doctor, you can give Lovenox. Um, Coumadin, safe or unsafe? Unsafe, um, Okay, safe during pregnancy. Antimicrobials, penicillin, cephalosporins, erythromycin, except estolate, which we don't give in the United States. Um, nystatin, clindamycin, INH, thambutol, if you want to treat P TB. Um, nitrofurantoins and sulfonamides, except in the third trimester, which is always so funny because everybody gives macrobed to all the pregnant patients, but it's actually unsafe in the third trimester. Um, Oh, is it? It's not actually the third trimester itself. It's, does it's oh, it's, it's delivery. Delivers. I didn't know that. I don't know, what's I don't know what the I don't know what it is. That, yeah, what causes? Deliver right after you okay. You know, I actually just looked this up. It's been up to date. Uh -huh. We had a, a lady with asymptomatic bacteria in her second uh -huh. trimester, and it said that all throughout trimesters, nitrofurantoin to unsafe. It's pregnancy B, but then it also says some studies show that it caused birth defects, like in the same sentence. Oh. I don't know how it can be pregnancy. Perfect. B it's B, probably safe, but don't worry. It's almost impossible to get pregnancy A levels. I mean, pregnancy right. Oh, yeah. A. I mean, Tylenol's B. Yeah, yeah Tylenol's B. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. that. It seems like it probably should be C. Um, so penicillin, okay, so all those. Okay, unsafe. Tetracyclines, don't give those. Treptomycin, which I don't know how you're going to give that in the United States. Um, tobramycin and the fluoroquinolones are unsafe. Vaccines, hepatitis B is okay. Tetanus is okay. Rabies is okay. Um, unsafe vaccines are the MMR, varicella, smallpox. Don't give the smallpox vaccine. Well, don't, give don't give the smallpox vaccine. In which case, you might <laughs> think twice about the pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Uh, Antiemetics, Reglan and Zofran are class B. Uh, the re remainder are class C, but 
risks may, or sorry, out, that the benefits may outweigh the risks. Um, analgesics, Tylenol is okay. NSAIDs and aspirin in the third trimester, um, you can't give. Anticoagulants, heparin and Lovenox, don't give Coumadin. So if someone has a PE, they're going to get Lovenox every day. Um, and that's it. And we'll go on to the next case. Great. Second trimester. So um, first trimester, flagell is contraindicated. So you can give the metro gel. The first trimester, so you give it for um, bacterial vaginosis, you give metro gel. And then once they're past 13 weeks, go ahead and give it PL. Yeah, so the pregnancy may cross the placenta, do cross the placenta, and may cause pernicious.